Now, this is the last uh, sermon in a, in a, a text-based topical series called Strong Church. The subtitle is Essentials for the Thriving Community. We've been just looking at different ways uh, to set ourselves up and to pursue um, living as a strong church, keeping the gospel at the center, making sure that we are uh, focused on community, we're focused on mission, we're focused on what it looks like for us to, by God's grace, to multiply uh, as a church, to plant other churches, etc. And so we've got, uh, we've had a strong church study guide that's kind of uh, carried us along with some key questions that we can ask every single week. But this is actually a condensed version of that that has a personal discipleship plan that was in the back of that study guide. This is just the personal discipleship plan. If you want to grab one of these, there's, they're on a table right next to the doors. We've, we've got a couple hundred of them. Um, and this will just walk you as a disciple of Jesus. Like, what's your plan? What's your plan for following him? Uh, we tend to like our spiritual, spirituality organic, but, and just like, you know, it kind of happens as it happens. But if you live the rest of your life like that, what a disaster. When it comes to like raising families, when it comes to your, 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 your bosses would not allow you to, to work in an environment where you just do it when you feel like it and take care of it as it comes and, and like you feel like it. But actually, we have to have a plan for how we organize our lives in the workplace, our family lives, our financial lives, all of that. And so this is an attempt to help you hone in on some key areas that can help you thrive uh, as a disciple of Jesus. So I'd love for you to grab one of those and interact. We're, our hope is, is that over the next year or so, every single person in our community would have their own PDP, their own personal discipleship plan that's aiming at how you're engaging with God's word, how you're engaging in prayer, how you're engaging in the mission of Jesus, who you see as your people that you are on mission to, who is your community. They're asking some of these, these, these uh, targeted, uh, for lack of better words, questions. So grab one of those if you would. Here is, here's the big idea. This is actually a quote from a missionary to inland China named Hudson Taylor. This is today's big idea. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Hudson Taylor lived from 1832 to 1905. He was, uh, he's probably the most influential missionary in the world besides the Apostle Paul. Uh, this guy has absolutely transformed the, the, the missions movement. And, uh, and one of the things that Hudson Taylor was really famous for, actually a couple of things he was really famous for, is as he came in as, um, as, as a British person, as he came into China, he quickly did away with his own Western dress and he adopted their way of dress and their way of keeping his hair, grew out a pigtail and like the whole thing to try to really acclimate and become one of these, one of the Chinese. Rather than saying, no, 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 you need to change your ways, he came in and said, we're going to adapt to you and this gospel that we preach is contextual. It can be contextualized to every people group, every language, every culture. It can be understood and lived out and followed over time. One of the other things that Hudson Taylor was really famous for is that he never asked ever for provision. He believed that God knew exactly what he needed and what they needed, and they just he, he never sent back home saying, hey, we need some funds for this, or we need some funds for salaries for these missionaries. He completely lived his life in this like radical faith. And so that's actually where this quote comes from, 
that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And this is a, a, a quote from him here. This is what he says. Listen in. One thing and one thing only will carry men through all and make and keep them successful. The kind of success he's talking about is kingdom of God kind of success. It's this, the love of Christ constraining and sustaining them, that's the only power. Not our love to Christ, nor perhaps even Christ's love to us personally, but rather his love to poor, ruined sinners in us. Many waters, that kind of radical grace from God to a multitude of people. He says, many waters will not quench that love, nor will floods drown it. And then he says, pray that this love may be in us. Pray that this kind of love, this radical love from God would be in us. So Hudson Taylor, his, his prayers and his, his bold fruit, his faithfulness, his fruitfulness, for God's kingdom, it really it followed in the footsteps of a guy that many of us, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know, the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote more of the New Testament than, than anyone. Of the, uh, of the total 27 works in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of them. Uh, the total word count is somewhere around 30% of the total New Testament. Paul was prolific, and one of the key marks in the Apostle Paul's writings, he would write these letters to these churches that he founded. One of the key marks of his writings is that he would often pray for these churches. He'd pray on the front end, he'd kind of pray on the back end, and oftentimes in the middle of his letters, he'd just be writing and, and saying, hey, I urge you to do this, or believe this, or this is what Jesus has done, and then he'll just kind of like break into prayer right there in the spot. And so that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in one of those prayers where he just whoop, kind of off to the side, and he just starts praying. He's worshiping Jesus, and he, he begins to pray for this church in modern-day Greece in Thessalonica. And so for me, where we're going to be today is in uh, first, first Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. But for me, this prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3, it's one of his overlooked prayers. I've just, I've never seen it the way that I've been seeing it this, this week. But one thing that I have been doing is I've been, I have over time spent quite a bit of time in um, Paul's prayers, just looking at the way that the Apostle Paul would pray for these churches and these individuals. And if you, if you notice, if you look pretty carefully at the way that Paul prays for people, and then you kind of pull that across time to our day and compare it a bit to the way that we pray, you know, he's praying, and then the way that we pray now, we'll notice some pretty significant differences between the Apostle Paul's prayers and our prayers. And it's, it's not this. It's not that the way that we pray today is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. It, it's not wrong how we pray. But I do want to say this. Our praying could for sure be, it could be better. Uh, it could be deeper. It could be far more dependent on God. So much, I think, of our praying kind of stays in the shallows, especially um, when we pray together as a community uh, so much of our prayer kind of focuses on removing pain rather than forming dependence on God and cultivating faithful allegiance to him in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our challenges and in the midst of our difficult circumstances. So I want to actually do a, a pretty quick survey of a few of Paul's prayers in the New Testament. So the first one is in Colossians 
The second one is in his second letter to the Thessalonians. And then the third one is in Philippians. And then we'll drop down into the text that we're going to really anchor ourselves in this morning. So if you've got a Bible or you've got the Bible on your phone, turn it on to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. If you're not very familiar with the Bible and where books of the Bible are, go straight to the front, to the table of contents. In the New Testament section, look for Colossians, and then just go to that page number. The big numbers are the chapter numbers that you'll find, and the little itty-bitty numbers in between sentences are the verse numbers. So go to chapter 1, verse 9. And this is what Paul writes to this Colossian church. They're small, probably no bigger uh, than the the number of people in this room right now. They're fledgling, they're struggling, they're being persecuted. They've they've got false teachers that are coming in and trying to kind of syncretize paganism and their belief in the gospel and, and, and make it a bit of a stew. And Paul is writing to them and helping these Colossians resist that. But he prays for them in verse nine. And this is what he says. He says, and so... From the very day we heard of their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in all of your good works and increasing in your knowledge of God. We Do not cease to pray for you that you would be strengthened with all power. That is God's power. According to God's glorious might. For all endurance. So that you can stand up under what it is that you're facing. And so that you would endure the things that you're facing with patience. But a kind of joyful patience. Patience with joy. And we have not ceased to pray for you that you would give thanks to the Father. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, those who have been delivered out of darkness. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Never once does Paul ask for the removal of their painful circumstances. He's always asking that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened and that they would be strengthened to endure. Look at 2 Thessalonians uh, Chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 11 and 12. So go to the right. If you've gone to First and Second Timothy or Titus, you've gone too far. You'll see First Th- or Second Thessalonians, I'm sorry. Chapter 1, verse 11. This is what he writes to them. He says, To this end, we always, notice that, always, we always pray for you. For what? That our God may make you worthy of his calling, that he does something unique and particular in you, that he makes you worthy of his calling, and that he may fulfill every resolve in you for good and every work of faith by his power. Everything that you're wanting to do for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of his glory, we're praying that he would fulfill those resolves in you. Verse 12, so that the name, why? So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you, and so that you might be glorified in him, being one with him according to this grace. That's unmerited favor, unearned favor of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not asking for the Thessalonians' troubles to end. He's asking for their eyes to be opened and for their love to abound. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. So go back to your left. Philippians comes right before Colossians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. 
the church in Philippi. Uh, Philippi is this place where the Rome, where Roman generals um, and and uh, retired soldiers would go to uh, receive plots of land by Rome. It was kind of an outpost of the kingdom. It was the first church in Philippi. It was, it was in, actually in modern-day Europe. Um, and this place was full of ex-soldiers, ex-Roman soldiers. And this is where the church in Philippi was birthed. It was birthed by a, a guy from Philippi who was a jailer there, um, a, a slave girl, and, uh, and a rich woman named Lydia. So it was a pretty diverse like, core group of a church team here. And he writes this to the Philippians. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent according to God and so that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's something about their love for one another abounding and growing that functionally uh, creates holiness in them. In reality, that they become more and more holy and blameless before God, that they would be, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Why? We want glory and praise for God. Now, head to the right again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. This is the text that we're going to be in for the rest of the morning this morning. This is how Paul prays. This is one of Paul's earliest letters, probably written in the year 50 or 51 AD. So this is like 15, 17 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. This is what Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, modern-day Greece. Now may our God and Father himself, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Direct, that word direct is a singular word. So the Father and the Son, may they unified, may they direct our way to you. And may the Lord, Jesus, make you increase and abound in love for one another. Not just for one another, but also for all. As we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The word saints there is the word, it's a word that means holy ones. It could mean both redeemed people and angels too. That at the coming of the Lord Jesus, all of the holy ones are, are coming together to celebrate redemption and his second coming. So here's, here's where we're going to go this morning. There are three requests, three main verbs in verses 11 through 13 that I want to look pretty closely at. First, Paul says, God, will you direct, will you direct our way to you or to each other? Would God direct our way to one another? The second is, God, would you make us abound in love for one another and also for others, so for insiders and also for outsiders? And then the third one is, God, would you establish our hearts? Would you establish us without blame? in holiness before you. Would you pray with me? Father, would you, uh, would, you, would you do just that? Would you direct us to gather together as a community, to commit ourselves to one another? Lord, would you increase our love for one another in this room, and would you increase our love for people who are not in this room, people in our spheres of influences, in our neighborhoods, wherever? 
And would you establish us? Would you strengthen us? Would you bring forth this reality that you have already said is true for us? Would you help us to catch up to what you've said is true of us? That we would live as holy people. That we would live blameless before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here is, here, here's this first point. It'll be up here on the screen. The Lord, this is what is true. The Lord directs our way to one another. The Lord directs us to each other. God, this is a reality. God wants us together. He wants you and I together. He directs his people to dwell together in, in unity. Psalm 133, the psalmist, I think it was David, I'm not, I'm not sure off the top, but he said, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The reality is, is that God wants us to meet together often. He wants us together. Please don't minimize our church's gatherings and your place in them. Please don't minimize the church's gatherings and your place in them. Worshiping together on a Sunday, Christians refer to Sundays as the Lord's Day. Worshiping together on Sundays, it is not everything, but it is something. And the something that Sundays are is significant. For over 20 centuries, since the beginning of the church, Christians have been meeting together in large gatherings and in small gatherings to worship together and to strengthen one another. This is just a a, a key like commitment that the church of Jesus Christ has been doing over time. This is not like a new Western development since the 1800s. This goes all the way back to the teaching of the apostles. One Sunday, when we come together like a Sunday like this, it's not that much to look at. It's pretty great. Like Bacon is on tap. Cold brew is on tap. We've got some baptism. Like we've got a baptism. Like we're celebrating together a bit this morning. But but just like one Sunday, we're we're not like we're definitely not a spectacular church. We're not an overproduced church. We're not all about like the event. We believe first and foremost we're a people who are gathered together. A church is a family to which we belong more than it's an event that we attend or a building that we go to. So one Sunday isn't all that much, but when you start to string together a couple of years worth of gatherings like this, think of, just for a moment, think of what they lead you to and think of who, they, who they've led you to over time. I wouldn't know basically anyone in this room if it wasn't for Sundays, and many of you wouldn't know me or our family. You wouldn't know one another. Think about the encouragement. Think about the prayer. Think about the repentance that occurs. Think about the celebration. Think about the morning when somebody loses someone or somebody is going through a tough time and we mourn and support one another. Think about the connection. Think about the opportunity that these days, the days just like this, is ordinary as they may feel in a moment, think about what they have actually opened you up to. It's pretty profound. Lifelong friendships, honestly. Paul's, Paul's longing as the pastor who founded this church that he's writing to in Thessalonica, his longing was to be with them. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted. He wanted to be with the Thessalonicans. The gospel it brings Paul to them, 
right? The gospel actually brings them together. Probably many of them didn't actually know one another, although families would have come in to, to believe the gospel and to worship together. One thing about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that it also keeps people together. God hates, he's really clear about this in the scriptures, he, he hates division. He loves and values unity, which is actually why he sent Jesus to us in the very first place. Why? To, to reconcile us to himself. We were divided from God. He intervenes himself in order to make us right with him. But he doesn't just end there. He aims for us to produce the fruit of the reconciliation that he's done in our relationship with him. He aims for us to produce that kind of fruit in our relationships with other people, which is why there are so many commands in the scriptures to forgive. Because we're regularly harming one another, regularly dividing against one another. Forgiveness in the scriptures is this mega theme. It's all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. Because it, it, forgiveness paves the way to reconciliation. And reconciliation paves the way to unity. God is the father of this redeemed family that he is unifying. Many people don't know this, but or maybe some of you don't know this, but Acts chapter 17, um, it actually tells the origin story of uh, this church in Thessalonica that we're reading their mail, legitimately. We're, we're reading their mail this morning. It tells their origin story. He's writing to them. He's urging them on. He's wishing that he's with them. Turn in Acts, if you would. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Turn there uh, to Acts chapter 17. I just want to read this. It's 10 verses. Paul and his traveling band are, are they're planting churches. They're, they're continuing to travel. They've actually just been run out of Philippi. Uh, they've been treated scandalously. Uh, they've been suffering. They, they, they make a quick exit out of Philippi. And they pass through, verse 1, they pass through this place called Amphipolis and Apollonia. And then they came to Thessalonica in Acts 17, verse 1. And, and as they come into Thessalonica, there's the synagogue of the Jews. This is where the Jews would gather on Saturdays. That's their Sabbath day to worship. And Paul goes in, Luke tells us, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, how often does a Sabbath day occur? Every seven days. So once a week. So on three Sabbath days, how much time is that? Three weeks. Three Sabbath days, he reasons with them from the Scriptures. What were his Scriptures? The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And what is, what is he doing from the Hebrew Scriptures? He's explaining and he's proving that it was necessary for the Christ, that is the word Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he's saying to them, to these Jews in Thessalonica, he's saying... This Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you, he is your Messiah. He's the Messiah that your Hebrew scriptures talk about. And some of them, some of these devout Jews were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So we've got Gentiles and we've got Jews and we've got some prominent women coming together in this community, starting to believe and give their allegiance to Jesus. Verse 5, but the Jews, the devout Jews there were jealous. These religious leaders, they were jealous. 
and taking some wicked men of the rabble, I love this, like some, some of the worst that they can find from the crowd of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, a, a, a member or someone who was giving safe passage to Paul and Silas. They're seeking to bring these guys out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, so these people who have done what they've done in Jerusalem, have now come here to create the same kind of trouble. And Jason, this guy, has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Actually, they're opposing Caesar now, this Roman Noble, this Roman king, saying there is another king besides Caesar, Jesus. This is punishable by death. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what we see in Acts chapter 17 is Paul and Silas and crew, they're, they're run really quickly out of Thessalonica. They preach the gospel to them, and they're only there for about three weeks, and then poof. Like they're gone and they're entrusting this community to the Spirit of God who dwells with them to keep them and to keep them together and to keep teaching them and that they would continue to propagate the gospel as well. Like I said earlier, Paul was in Philippi previously. He was mistreated shamefully there. You can read about that if you just bump up a chapter into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He talks about how he was treated in Philippi. And so in this whole region, this is a place called Macedonia, this whole region, modern-day Greece, there's all kinds of conflict, there's all kinds of trouble for Paul and his traveling band of gospel preachers as they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and pulling together people around this gospel and forming churches. Yet in the midst of all of this conflict and all of this opposition, what Paul does in this prayer in First Thessalonians chapter 3 is he directs their attention from their circumstances in front of them, real legit suffering. From all of that, he, 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 it's like he reaches down and he, like, he lifts their chin up to see like, hey, God is up to something among you. God is doing something among you. Continue to entrust yourself to the work that he is doing. And he says, May our God and our Father, apparently God the Father is involved in the, the details of our lives. May our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, where the Father is working among people, there Jesus is too. The two are unified, the Spirit among them, the three unified. May the Lord direct our way to you. May he get us back to you. We really want to be with you. I know it's going to be rough for us. I know we're going to suffer if we come back in and are discovered. But at threat of our own lives, we want to get back there so bad. We want to be with you. And I know, you guys, you want us there too. I know that's the reality. But Paul, what he's saying functionally by praying this is he's going, hey, church in Thessalonica, let's entrust ourselves. Let's entrust ourselves to God and ask him to give us our heart's desire. May the Lord direct our steps to you. It's likely that Paul had this wish and the Thessalonians had this wish granted to them on Paul's uh, third missionary journey about five years later. You can read about it in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Paul's praying. He's full-on praying in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. May the Lord direct our way to you. Do you see your relationships among the people of God, among the church of Jesus? Do you see your relationships as God-given? 
Do you see your relationships as like a gift that even if you weren't aware of it, that he has actually given to you? He's brought you into other people's paths and he's brought other people against great odds into, into your paths. Or do you see your relationships, particularly like in your community of faith in a church community, do you see them uh, as just kind of like no biggie and, and take them for granted? This has been, this week for me personally, this has been re- like seriously convicting to me this week uh, because I tend to see life, I tend to see relationships, I tend to see everything that goes on around me through a natural lens rather than a spiritual lens. I just, it's like, it's where I go. And then my work is like, no, no, no. Like, I know that you're sovereign, Lord. I know that you're working. And then my work is to go from this kind of natural bent to that I am, that's my disposition. And then I'm like working and kind of talking myself back into what I actually believe, not just where I go impulsively. Just because I lean in one direction, it doesn't mean that that's the way that things really are. Just because you lean in a direction, maybe it's more natural or maybe it's more spiritual or maybe it's more this or that. Just because you lean that way doesn't mean that you're the arbiter of truth. It doesn't mean that's the way things are actually are. We come to the scriptures to have truth solidified for us and to have our lives and our minds calibrated from God's word. Scripture is teaching that every single person in our fellowship has a first cause behind why we're here. Every single person here, there's actually a first cause behind why you are here, that God has directed your steps into the room this morning, into the room years ago, into this community. The Father and Son Scripture teaches are directing our relationships. One of the Proverbs says, the heart of man plans his way, but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. But there's also a second cause. You and I have made real decisions, and we've taken real steps, one foot in front of the other, got into the car, like turned it on, drove down here with intention, or drove uh, into a group of Christians to worship the Lord Jesus together with intention. We've taken actual steps, and what it means is that we're stewards of this community. We're not consumers, but caretakers. And so stewarding our community, the community of God's people, the saints, it's a non-negotiable. This is our work, to steward the people that God has brought us to and who he has brought to us. He directs and we connect with one another one thing that's just interesting, and, and it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but look, if you look at uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, notice all of the plural pronouns. I know pronouns is a bad word in our day and language. It's not actually a bad word. You can use pronouns correctly. Pronouns, look at the plural pronouns in this section. There's 13 of them. There's only 64 words, and there's 13 plural pronouns. The only person pronouns are related to Jesus or the Father. Everything else is our, us, we. He's writing to a community here. This is not just a group of individuals, Jesus and me and my coffee and all that. He's writing to a community who God has brought together and assembled himself. You like living stones are being built up into a holy temple for the Lord Jesus to dwell in. God's work done in God's way. This is what he wants for us. It will never lack his supply. Second point. I got to speed up because we're going to be here all day. The Lord causes. Look at this. The Lord or makes 
us to increase and abound in love for one another, and not just for one another, but also for all. Paul writes, he prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. One way that we steward and one way that we caretake our community is through our participation in it, through the way that we interact with one another. We take responsibility. This isn't just something that gets left up to the leaders. Paul isn't even there. He's writing to them. He's saying, hey guys, take care of one another. The prayer that he's praying here delights, it delights the heart of God the Father. It delights the heart of God. He knows, Paul knows that this church will thrive as they cultivate love for one another, that is the Christian community, but also love for all, that is like the whole human race, even their enemies. So Paul prays and he asks the Lord Jesus, that's what what is there under the word Lord, he's asking the Lord Jesus to make this community increase and then like abound and overflow in the way that they love each other in the way that they give themselves to one another. This prayer, it hits like it hits all of the stages. Notice even in verse 12, notice the double progress here. Lord, would you make their love increase and abound for one another and for all people? The Thessalonians, they need this agape It's the Greek word for love that he's using here. This agape love poured into their hearts. Some of them, grumpy and cold. Like the rest of us. Like some of us. Like me after 9 o'clock at night. I got to do something with this. I don't know what's going on. I need bed. That's what I need at 9 o'clock at night. Some of you guys who are laughing need it too. They need their love and appreciation for one another. Like they need this Uh, They need it to increase. It's like anything helps. Others may have just been unaware that their love for the people around them, it needed some help. And still others might have been just resistant to loving the devout Jews who were opposed to them and to loving the pagan Romans who were opposed to them. I know some followers of Jesus who just love people different than them, like way different than them really, really well. I think about you guys. I think about the Nunez family. The way that you guys love people, you love people really, really well. I just heard Keith Johnson say, amen. Keith Johnson, you love people really, really well. You and Amy. I missed who said that, but I'll get you in a second. The, the Moors, I'm looking at you, Dana. I can see you back there, Sharon. Hi. You love people really well. The Zycheks, the Brazils, Mark, you love people well. There's so many of us in this room who love people really, really well. And, and, and you, in, you inspire me. And in some ways, you make it look, you make the way that you love people, you make it look pretty easy. But the truth is that if I were to ask you, is it easy the way that you seem to love people? You'll tell, you, you'll, you'll tell us, I guarantee it, that it takes a lot of intentionality takes a ton of intentionality because you've prayed, you've tried, and you've failed. You haven't even tried. You just said, not today. Sometimes you've taken the meeting, you've taken the phone call, you've taken the appointment when it was the last thing that you you wanted to do. And yet your desire to honor Christ outdoes your desire to please yourselves 
And you found that, you find, we find that as we, as we love our neighbors, Christ honors us and loves us and our love increases and abounds all the more. And we still have to pray and we still have to humble ourselves and we still have to work hard at loving the people around us. Neighborly love, it's like a bicep. Like you have to like work it because that's how it grows. But if you stop working it, then what happens, right? It, it shrivels. It's interesting to me, switching gears a little bit here, like I'll just put a period on that and just say like loving one another is really difficult. And we live in such a mobile society that we could just peace out. I don't like it. I don't like the way you're making me uncomfortable. I'm just going to avoid you. I'm just going to cut you off, unfriend, do all the things on social. But I'm also going to do that in my real life too. I do this. It's interesting how Paul opens his letter by writing and praying for the increase of their love. He's saying, I pray, Father, would you make their love increase and abound all the more? And then he closes it in, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians by saying, now concerning brotherly love, you don't have anyone, any need for anybody to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that's indeed what you're doing all, uh, to all of the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. So I'm writing you to tell you that you need to increase in your love, but I'm, now I'm writing you telling you that you don't even need me to write to you because God's already the one who has been teaching you. And he goes on and he's saying, but in light of that, we urge you, brothers and sisters, do this more and more and more to aspire, do, uh, keep loving one another more and, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul knows some things. He knows that to love people with the love of God, you have to have a love that isn't of your own making. To love people with the love of God, you have to have a love that you don't originate within you, that you don't just white-knuckle your way into. He knows that as a person depends on Christ to give us this kind of neighborly love, that our love actually won't just terminate on the household of faith, because it's the Spirit of God who pours His love into our hearts, we're actually filled with the love of God. And so we can begin to reciprocate and love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it doesn't just stop there. As the love of God is poured into our hearts, we begin to love one another with a kind of brotherly and neighborly love. And it doesn't just stop there, but we begin to love people who aren't like us or who may not even like us. It continues to permeate through us, which is why the people of God are a radical people who ought to be known for our love. I was reading, I was just looking at social a bit this week, and um, I, saw, uh, I saw like a, a graphic that had a quote from John Piper on it, and he said this. He said, when you're full to the brim, you'll spill when you're bumped. What do people feel? Do they feel acid or do they feel grace? That was his quote. Here's how I'd retool it. When you're full to the brim, you will spill when bumped. What do people feel? Do they feel distance or love? Do they feel like a burden or do they feel like a friend? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. As we do for you, the apostle here is asking the church to join him, to join the apostles. They're not above what they're asking. They're right in the middle of practicing the love of God on the people that they're around too. And these people are hurting them and harming them and threatening their lives. 
Imagine if we as a church committed ourselves to making Paul's prayer our prayer. In our gatherings, whether it's on a Sunday or in communities or in pockets of discipleship groups or women's gatherings or men's gatherings, however it is that we gather, imagine if we committed ourselves to making the kind of prayers that Paul prays our own prayers. Like This is how the world will take notice of the reality, the raw power, the transcendence, the magnificence of Jesus Christ. He's incredible. He challenges the Jesus. He challenges the authorities of his day who are being dumb and wicked. He challenges them straight up. And he doesn't just challenge them because they're dumb and wicked so that he can make things easier for himself. He challenges their dumb wickedness so that they will actually come to him and have life so that their hearts can be renewed, so that their minds can be renewed, so that they can be healed. He loves and touches the downtrodden in ways that many of us, we would just move away from people. There's not a chance that we would touch. Though God, Jesus comes to serve. He comes to live as one of us. Though God, Jesus becomes human, and he lives as both our substitute and our mediator, but he also lives as our friend, and he also lives as our Lord. He's the whole package. He endures the wrath of the Father against the ungodly at the cross, the wrath that we deserve, so that we don't have to. He shields us from it. He gets cut off from perfect union with Father so that we can be brought into the family of God. He entrusts, he lives with 12 really difficult, really different men, and he molds them into godly men who are eventually unified and who never split apart. He entrusts them with a mission that only God can be trusted with if you think about it. He forgives his executioners while they're executing him. This is the real Jesus. Forgiving his executioners while they're spilling his blood and he's hanging half naked in front of them. His words, his vocal cords firing, his mind, his heart firing. And what does he say? He says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the kind of foolishness they're giving themselves to. This is the heart of God for humanity, to humanity. He is incredible. He stays with billions of us believers, and we can barely keep in step with him for a handful of hours. And he stays with us and stays with us. And even when we have trouble seeing his hand in our everyday lives, there he is working consistently, bearing witness, keeping his promise to never leave or forsake his people, even though that's the way that we respond to him so often. And so, like right here, Lord Jesus, would you make us increase and abound in our love. Lord Jesus, would you help the world to take notice as we embrace the way that you, Lord, want to live through us? Would you help us to be less obsessed with our circumstances and more obsessed with our hearts being consumed by your way of life that you want to live through us? Would we be consumed, Lord, by your love, our work, is to stay together and is to ask God for supernatural agape love. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Landing the plane here. 
Leon Morris writes, he says, it's characteristic of the Christian outlook that the prayer is for love for each other and for everyone else. While love for each other was no more than the Gentiles practiced, love for all men was way more difficult and could only come as a gift from God. But the specifically Christian quality denoted by this agape love, it's never natural to humankind. It comes only to those who have been transformed by the power of God. Whether it is exercised toward believers or non-believers, agape love is the gift of God. This indeed is implied in the fact that Paul makes it a matter for prayer. Lord, Father, Son, Spirit, increase our love. Make us abound in love for one another and for others. Here's the last point, and it'll be short, because everything is aiming at it. The Lord establishes and strengthens our hearts to be blameless and to be holy before him. Verse 13, there's something about this abounding love of God that is filling us and then that is like spilling out of us that establishes and strengthens our our own hearts. The love of God expanding in our lives is doing something more than just merely expanding in our lives. Here's how the New Living Translation Uh, Translates verse 13. May he as a result make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. As God is increasing our love for one another and we're abounding in love for one another and he's bringing us together, he is using this community and he's using the way that we transact in our love to catch us up functionally to what God has already declared that we are in reality, which is holy and which is blameless. He's, this process for us, you guys, it's just we're just catching up. We're just catching up to what he's already said is true about us and what he has said that he will complete on the day that we see him face to face. So this life is about chasing that reality, chasing that identity down to live more and more fully into what he calls us to because he said, I'm going to complete it all. No, I want you to run at it. I want you to live at it. And we know, you and I know, we do this so imperfectly. We fall all over ourselves all the way. But there is this grace of God to us in Jesus Christ that he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Keep going. Finally, be strong in the strength of the Lord and in the strength of his might. He will not give up on his people ever, ever, ever. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Would you pray with me? Father, Holiness and blamelessness feels so out of reach when I assess myself. And the reality is, is that I'm not even my own judge. You are. And no one in this room is their own judge, and we're certainly not the judges of each other. You are. And you have declared that everyone who believes in Christ and whose allegiance is for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is declared holy and blameless before you. This is a reality that you have spoken over us. And you've given us your spirit. We just are saying this back to you, Lord. You've given us your spirit to live in us 
and to continue to push us and to pull us and to press us in this direction. We are a people of insane hope. Thank you, thank you, thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for this work that you're doing in us. Lord, where people are floundering and just doubting that this is actually true, Holy Spirit, would you fill them with faith? Would you help them to believe? Where we're unloving and cold and full of self-centeredness, would you warm us up to the reality of what you've done to us? And, and then would you begin to do it through us? Lord Jesus, would you unify us? Would you give us strength? Would you give us influence in our community? That your gospel would be more and more known and more and more loved in post falls and beyond. Do it through the other faithful churches too. We love them. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.